welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. I hate the people who talk about it all the time, so I didn't want to be one of those people. From two guys who study the markets as a passion. Can I count on you to talk me off the ledge, partner? Yes, and that's what this podcast is for. And trade for all the right reasons. That's my due diligence. I'm in. Dude, if you're in, I'm in. A line of thinking is the higher the volatility on an asset, the higher the volatility on the opinions. So I feel like you have crazies on both sides. Here's your host of Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. I can say that I was never driven by money. So you were trading three times the leverage ETFs for the love of the game. Exactly, man. <laughs> I, I'm a purist. But anyway. <laughs> and Ben Carlson. This is true. I do not drink coffee. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done fantasy football. Oh, one last thing. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Now, today's show. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Just want to give a quick shout out to the great Jim Carrey who sold all of his Facebook stock on February 6th, about 20-something percent ago. Way to go, Jim. Hats off to you. He actually might need some of those proceeds because his artwork isn't quite up to par to his stock picking skills. Did you see the picture of Mark Zuckerberg he painted? Yeah, it's not great. It looks like the little fat kid from the Sandlot. Yeah. Anyway. Anywho. So investing used to be a lot easier. This is. I think it's probably easier in some ways and much harder in other ways. And so there was a tweet going around by ROI Christie is her handle, and she's an institutional investor, good follow on Twitter, and she had a graph she put up that said, a little food for thought, in 1995, institutions could hit a 7.5% return target with 100% bonds, which was roughly 4% volatility. And the idea there is that you could get 7 to 8% in government bonds back in the mid-90s, which seems crazy today. Yeah, during that decade, five-year Treasury notes did 7.2% a year with 4.35% standard deviation, the, so the, basically what she, what she said. So I wonder how many institutions actually did that. They would lock yeah, up I'm sure. I'm sure, I'm sure very few. Yeah, very few. I'm sure that- Because stocks were, stocks were giving you, what, 13 14% a year? Right, which, I mean, it's easy to look at that in hindsight and say, how easy was that to invest in? But- when you have stocks tempting you to go into them. And so that's when a lot of these institutions, a lot of the studies show in the late 90s, they made a huge push into stocks and lightened up on bonds at pretty much the wrong time, especially pension plans. I have a little bit of that in a couple of my books. Which is funny because right right now we're thinking like 7.5% expected returns seems like insane, which is why they're making all this push into private equity and things like this, where just 25 years ago, they could have gotten 7% just by parking into government bonds. Pretty nuts. Yeah. And the, so the idea here is that Today, the hard part about investing is that you basically have to learn to accept some volatility if you're going to earn anything above the inflation rate. Or follow Jim Carrey. <laughs> or follow Action Alerts Plus Jim Carrey. So, I mean, the, the idea is, as investors, you basically have to understand not only how volatility works in the market, but when it makes sense to take those risks and volatility and which ones pay better than others, which obviously is, is the hard part, I think, here especially for institutions that have these bogeys to hit, which we've talked about in the past, is going to be really, really tough for a lot of them for to meet their expected returns. And, and I think the, the biggest maybe unintended consequence of these days where we have low interest rates and higher than average valuations in, in U.S. markets is there's just going to be, I think there's going to be more, I think it opens the door for more like fraud and deception and over promises from people in the financial services industry. 
because a lot of people are going to want to hear. They're, they're not going to want to hear what they have to hear. They're going to hear what they want to hear. I don't know how Janet Yellen sleeps at night. <laughs> well, she's gone. It doesn't matter to her anymore. She's going to be getting paid a million dollars to give a speech, right? Something like that. True. It's uh, the new Powell guy. So there's been a lot of talk lately on buybacks. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they evil? And one thing that might be missing from the conversation was some good, solid empirical data, which was brought to us by our friends at Alpha Architect. Jack Vogel wrote a really good piece. So just taking a step back, what companies can do, and I guess if the, if the thinking is that buybacks are bad, well, then what else are they supposed to do with their excess capital? They can reinvest it in the business and be uber successful like Amazon has done. But what does the data say? And the data says that over the past 40 years, low asset growth stocks have maintained a return premium of 20% per year over high asset growth stocks. So companies that have plowed a lot of money back into the business, just in terms of like investing in a basket of these stocks, that would not be a good investment strategy. By the way, before getting into this, I think Alpha Architect does a service to people like us who don't like reading through 30 and 40 page academic research. Basically, the way that, that my mind works on this is I read the introduction yeah, yeah. and then I skim. More conclusion I, people. I always control F conclusion and then read the conclusion. So the fact that they go through and so, so if you're not following those guys, it's, it's definitely worth it. They, they go through and they really summarize a lot of these academic papers and make them a little easy to understand. And this was actually kind of a new one to me. So the idea is a lot of people would rather see companies invest in assets or research and development or investing for the future a la someone like Amazon and assume that that would, be, that would make them better off and that would thus make their shareholders better off. But Jack is showing here that's not the case. It, it, the average, on average, firms who invest a higher proportion of their capital actually underperform firms who invest a lower proportion of their capital, which wouldn't seem to make sense. But the other way, if you flip it on its head, the way that I think about this, and I just wrote a piece for Bloomberg about this, it should be out probably by the time this, this podcast leaks, is if you think about Wait, it... it leaks? Well, that's not a... What? That's not a hip enough phrase? Drops. Drops. Okay. Sorry, yo. So ba- ba- the basic idea that I have, especially for larger cap firms, the stock market is a high bogey to beat. So if you're trying to beat 6, 7, 8, 9, 10%, whatever it is, as a return target, which would be what you'd get from the buybacks, hopefully, that's a tough hurdle to hit when you're trying to invest internally. And a lot of larger firms might not be able to invest that successfully in their own property, plant, equipment, research, development, whatever. Jack dug through a paper that showed the return of an equal weighted portfolio of uh, low growth versus high growth. And high growth meaning that they plow a lot of the money back into R&D and things like this. And the low growth baskets on average did 26% versus high growth, which did 4%. So Amazon is the exception. I mean, there's a lot of companies like uh, one of the examples that Jack gave was General Motors. And they said that GM spent $67 billion while ending with an equity valuation of $26 billion. And I think this was in the 80s. We'll put this in the show notes. Uh, To put that into context, the equity value of Toyota and Honda combined was $21.5 billion in 1985, meaning that GM could have bought Toyota and Honda and would still have $40 billion to spend. Wow. I wonder what the returns for GM would have been in the 80s if they hadn't bought all those shares back. Obviously, there's no counter, there's no uh, you know, counter examples or, or other timelines we can go down, but that, that's pretty interesting. The, my impetus for writing my piece was the fact that there was actually Democrats were trying to put a bill in place to ban buybacks, which seems odd because in my mind, 
buybacks and dividends are almost interchangeable from an economic perspective. And our friend Jake, the pseudonymous blogger at Economic, wrote a great explainer about this. I, I won't try to go through his whole piece, so we'll link to it in the show notes, which you can find at either of our websites. And he kind of goes to show that stock buybacks and dividends are more or less the same thing. So if you just replaced buybacks with dividends and all the headlines that show how buybacks are so horrible, it would it might change the way you frame this discussion. Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, I agree. And there is, there's a ton of nuance there that we'll get into in a second. But Ed Borgato had an interesting take on this. So he said, dividends and buybacks are not the same thing. Taking a distribution from your business is a fundamentally different economic calculation than using excess cash to buy out some of your partners. And I would say maybe it's not a different economic calculation. Maybe it's a different psychological calculation. But he ends with, calling buybacks returning cash to shareholders conflates capital allocation choices. True. It, it kind of changes the choice from company management to the end investor. And the, I guess the great thing about dividends is that the end investor actually has a choice of what to do with that cash flow. And I think a lot of people like that intrinsic hard cash flow in their pockets to be able to show that businesses actually have it on hand. And so the other data I dug out was from Michael Mobison when he was at Credit Suisse. And he showed capital deployment across all different capital allocation decisions from companies going back to 1980. And the interesting thing to me was, first of all, M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions dwarf both buybacks and dividends by a large amount. The other thing was M&A and buybacks are both very cyclical. The volatility of the numbers from year to year were huge, whereas things like R&D and dividends are very stable in terms of how volatile they are and, and sort of very static and, and slowly rise. So I think that's part of the reason people have such a hard time wrapping their head around buybacks because they're cyclical. And so a lot of times when markets are high, companies are buying back more shares. And when markets are low, they, they take their foot off the gas a little bit and buy back fewer shares, which doesn't make sense in terms of thinking in terms of like a counter-cyclical investment strategy. Yeah. So that's probably why there's a negative stigma around them. This reminds me of the quote that is supposedly credited to Mark Twain. Who knows if he said it or if he got it from somebody else, but a banker is a fellow who lends you his umbrella when the sun is shining, but wants it back the minute it begins to rain. That's kind of like what buybacks are. So it's sort of a, an eye roll when people think about them, but people think, you know, it's sort of the availability bias. You think about companies that have brought back large amount of shares like IBM that have done them absolutely no good. But empirically, looking at the data from, from Jack Vogel, well, the alternative is that they can plow that back into the business, but that's not, that's not a good strategy in the aggregate either. So a lot of interesting points in this yeah, discussion. Def- definitely not black and white. So there was a good piece this week, Institutional Investor Magazine, basically on Whitney Tilson, who is a hedge fund manager who recently closed up his shop and closed up his fund. Uh, he had a hedge fund called Case Capital. And supposedly... In the early 2000s, like a lot of hedge funds, he had a lot of success. And leading up to and following the crisis, he hasn't had as much success. And it was a very open and honest take about the travails of being a portfolio manager and not performing well for your clients. And this was there, there was a lot of really good stuff in here. But it's kind of crazy how the biggest takeaway for me was how a lot of these hedge fund managers really try to show how they're sort of masters of the universe, but on the inside, they're all just freaking out about keeping up performance, keeping up the looks of being a a huge financier. Yeah, it sounds absolutely exhausting. And I don't think that these guys take their responsibility lightly. I think like there's a lot of misconceptions and of course this exists but like these guys just driving maseratis and bentleys and sort of lounging on the beach but i think that these guys are you know at least the good ones um are just totally obsessed and consumed and it takes over their life one of the things that he said that i thought was really interesting 
Tillerson's returns have been floundering since 2010. He says he trailed the, the S&P 500. And in 2017, he, he had lost almost 9% on the year by the time he shut down his fund. Quote, in an ironic twist, I always built my firm to survive the worst storm, but it was a nine-year bull market, complacency and sunshine that took me out. End quote. That is uh, pretty pretty honest of him. In a lot of the stuff he says is a different way of saying a lot of the stuff I heard from hedge funds. I remember back in 2010, 2011, the hedge funds that we talked to that either we invested in or were, were looking at, at the endowment fund I worked at, I mean, these guys back then were starting to freak out like maybe the way that we did things in the past just doesn't work anymore. And and maybe people, you know, a lot of it ended up getting blamed on the Fed and monetary policy. But I think a lot of it was the fact that some of these guys just have a hard time accepting that things have changed and the old fundamental way of doing things that they used to just don't work anymore. And part of that, I think, is just because there's so much more competition now. And so the, the the easy way of doing things back in the 80s and 90s when it was more of a Wild West atmosphere, a lot of those things just don't work anymore, unfortunately. I wrote about this a week or two ago. When Alfred Winslow Jones set up his hedge fund, I guess in the 40s or early 50s, all he would do was go long a exp- uh, basket of cheap stocks and short a basket of expensive stocks, and nobody else was doing it, and he and he crushed it. And now long short is one of like, you know, the most sort of basic corners of the hedge fund world. And it's just a really, really tough pond to swim in. Yeah. So, so there was another kind of along the same lines. I've written a lot about hedge funds over the years. I kind of have a love-hate relationship there. But one of the crazy things about the hedge fund space is the fact that people assume in that area that you get what you pay for. And it's a lot of that line of thinking pervades institutional investors, high net worth investors, family offices, they get this feeling that if they're paying higher fees and they have really rich managers, that they must be doing something better for them. So I was actually talking to a friend in the business this week who just started raising fund for a new, for a new fund, new capital for a new fund. Hey, before before we get to that, I just have a quick question that I don't think I ever asked you. Okay. Did did you were you guys invested in any funds that absolutely crushed the market? We had yes, we had a fund that was up probably twenty percent in two thousand eight. And the the crazy thing about the fund was, it wasn't like it was the greatest thing in the world to them that happened. The funny thing was, there were so many other funds doing terribly, they got used as the ATM because so many of these big institution endowments, foundations, pension plans were bleeding elsewhere and had to meet like private equity capital calls that this fund that had done so well for their investors was not getting more money put in. They're having more money taken out to meet liquidity demands elsewhere. So they were so saying, they were like they were like the bonds inadvertently. Yeah, a little bit. They were like the they kept calling it. We're, we're like the ATM for everyone, and it made no sense. So all this money got taken out when things went well, and then of course a few years later, people saw the track record and they poured a bunch of money in, and then then of course performance lagged, and so yeah, so yeah, we saw it. it's just the performance chase is pervasive everywhere. It doesn't matter how big the fund, how small the fund, what type of investor. It's just it's it, it's everywhere, and it's it's really really bizarre how it works, especially in this space. And and the thing is, these these funds are constantly fundraising. Like they have people who that I mean that's their only job. And a lot of the people that I worked with, I'd see them at different funds over the years because they would come in, it's like it's like a sales job, like a sales temp job. Like you have two to three years to fundraise, go through your Rolodex, pull everyone out you can, and then it's like you hit your bogeys, we'll give you a bonus and you move on to somewhere else. So anyway, so this this new a friend of mine that uh, is raising a fund is coming from outside the asset management world, so has no idea how it really works. And they're meeting with with investors, and they can't believe the fact that they they've set up this fund with 
it's kind of like an LP structure, private equity, like where the way that that usually works is you pay a management fee, call it one to two percent, and then the you get your performance fee, which is usually twenty percent of the profits. What they wanted to do is really align with shareholder interests and not even have a performance fee because they think they'll just make all their money by investing their own capital in the fund. And so the crazy thing to me is that the guy told me as they're raising assets, they they keep telling all these investors, we're going to waive a performance fee and not even have a huge management fee because we think we can make enough in returns to make up for any of the costs and performance. We'll get it that way. And the funny thing is, is that all the investors are showing dissatisfaction with that approach because they think they want to quote unquote align incentives and they want to be charged a performance fee, which makes zero sense. So they're trying to offer investors a good deal, but investors are kind of skeptical thinking that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm just shaking my head. I got nothing. That's that's nuts. Yeah, so that's that's just kind of the way that things work in that world, and it's it's really backwards in a lot of ways. And these these people again coming to me from outside the world of finance, going, "How? Why are people like this?" And it, it's funny. There's just this stigma in that space of you get what you pay for, which in investing it's the opposite. You know, you get what you don't pay. That's the what's the, is that the Bogle quote? Yeah. So the, I guess some some people would rather would be intrigued by the fact that somebody has the chutzpah to charge three and 40, like they must really know what they're doing. Yeah. It, it's all, it, it's just all a big, big story. And I think wealthy people assume because in other areas of life that happens, that it must translate into investing, which it obviously doesn't. So I was reading a, an article in the times this week, I forget what the, the title was, but the gist of it was that a reporter came into some money and they didn't really know what exactly to do with it. So what they decided to do was have a horse race between a human advisor and a robo-advisor. What do you think about this? We, we've gotten this a few times in the past from prospects as well. I think it definitely makes sense if, if you're a consumer of anything to, to really kick the tires and figure out what it is you're getting out of any service or good. I, I do a lot of research on this stuff too, obviously. But the idea of trying to go two different directions and split your money up and then compare performance after a year or 18 months is just kind of a silly way to manage your your funds because you're creating the wrong incentives either internally for yourself or externally for the people you give your money to. If you tell somebody that you're doing that, well, then they're incentivized to swing for the fences. Yeah. And Barry wrote a piece about this uh, a couple years ago. And, and I remember he said, we had a prospect come to us one time and they said, we're going to give our money to four different managers and check the performance. And after we see, after a year or two, whoever has the best performance, we're going to give all the money to, which is a perfect way to introduce outside risks that are totally unintended into the process. Because if you tell a manager or a financial advisor that you're going to give all the money to the person who performs best, that means they're going to swing for the fences. If they lose and you lose a bunch of money, they don't care. They're going to lose their money anyway. But if they win and happen to luck out and have good performance over a short time period, they're going to get it all. So it just creates a weird incentive structure. Yeah. And even if they, even if you didn't tell the person what, what your motivations were, a year or whatever the time period was, it might as well be a second. It's not enough time to judge performance or process or anything like that. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with this type of process, you are it, it is really a big trust-based thing. You know, you're, You have to try to figure out whether the person on the other end is going to do what they tell you they're going to do. Are they over-promising and are they going to under-deliver? That's not an easy thing to know because how much of it is skill and how much of it is luck. And so this gets to the idea that we always talk about, about process over outcomes. Like It's really hard for people outside the world of finance to judge 
a good process between one advisor and another. And so I think it really comes down to, you know, how much can you trust the person on the other end? Especially over such a short period of time. One of the interesting things that she said was they fired the money manager because it got personally jargoned them and sort of was condescending and made them feel like inferior and was talking down to them. So she said, getting personal, it turns out, was a two-way street. The algorithm never schmoozed, but it also never insulted. We fired the bank, moved that money to the robo-advisor, and have been satisfied since. Yeah, and, and maybe for them, it, it will work and it'll help, but, but, but I think investment performance is rarely the way to judge that, especially over a short period of time. Yeah. So another article in the journal, do most people need life insurance? Do you have any life insurance? I do. Of course I do. Yeah. Did you get it when your son was born or right after? Yes. Okay. That's kind of when I did it too, right after my daughter was born. Well, maybe before I went and got it too. It sounds like just looking at the data, less people are getting it than they used to. According to a 2017 report by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, 60% of households had life insurance in 2013, off from 77% in 1989. Why do you think that is? I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that People don't save a lot of money in the first place, so I'm sure life insurance for a lot of people falls under that category, which it probably shouldn't. I don't think that insurance really falls under your retirement or savings needs. I think insurance really is about risk and and not building up a nest egg. So there was an article by Peter Orzag at Bloomberg View a few weeks ago, too, and he kind of gave some similar data. So he says, in 1965, Americans purchased 27 million policies individually or through employers. The population was 50% larger in 2016, but still 27 million policies were sold. So basically, it's fallen. It's stayed the same, but population has has exploded and not as many people are buying it, which is bizarre because in my experience, it was really cheap. And so, I mean, especially for people with families, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. I think I pay $22 a month for term life insurance. I don't know what the rates are today. Yeah, but you have a six pack. (laughs) What does that what does that mean? Your rates are lower. Oh. Yeah, well, doesn't everyone just just lie and say they're perfectly healthy and So there was two guys in the article. One of them was pro-life insurance and one of them was anti. And I think the the pro arguments were pretty commonsensical. It was, you know, not an investment, but if you have a family, I don't I think it's irresponsible not to have life insurance. As a matter of fact, this hits close to home because <laughs> My wife's father passed away at a very young age, and he was severely underinsured, and the chances of him dying were whatever, one in you know $400,000, but he died, and this like really affected their family and, and uncles and grandparents. It affected everybody, and it's something that financially like we're still dealing with. It's a huge, huge, huge problem. So I think to say that you don't need to be insured because the chance of you dying is, is pretty silly. As a matter of fact the person arguing against life insurance sort of said something like this. So two points that I thought were very, um, let's say, less than intelligent to be to be nice. He said, uh, most people are very likely to outlive their coverage, which makes their rate of return on the policy zero. In fact, they will be getting a negative rate of return due to all the money that they spent on being insured over their life before the policy ended. And then he goes on to say, in short, with these policies, the longer you live, the lower your internal rate of return. So why not just invest the money in a high-performing index fund instead? Ooh. Yeah, what? that's... A, yeah, that's... Ugh. See, and the thing is, I think maybe psychologically, it's, it's kind of a morbid thought to have, especially when you're young and it doesn't matter what your health is. No one really thinks they're going to die and, and leave their their family in the lurch. But I mean, it's just, that's just one of those things. Again, I don't, I don't think you compare it to index funds or investing or rate of returns. This is just more of a, of a huge risk thing that you're taking care of with your family. Uh, you know, and who, who cares if you're throwing those premiums away? Right. 
Yeah, I mean, you're throwing, you don't hope to die. Like, you don't hope that it pays off. I started at an insurance at an insurance company, and life insurance, at least especially whole life insurance, was the answer to everybody's problems, even if there wasn't one. So, like, you you told me a story about one of your friends who was single, uh, probably never going to get married and have kids, was pitched life insurance. Yep. Yeah, we had a family member who who was single and probably eternal bachelor and was pitched life insurance from an agent. And he said, what do you think? And I said, why would you buy life insurance? You're single. You have no beneficiaries. Oh, okay. So I think a lot there, maybe there's a lot of misunderstandings about it for some people. Well, it's not just misunderstanding. It's they're deliberately intentionally misleading. So when you look at these illustrations, uh, not knowing much about how like math works and investing works, if you see these dividend payments, like, and what the policy cash value can be in 40 years, it's like, holy shit, that's a ton of money. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, if, if you, you know, $10,000 compounding at 4% for 40 years is a lot of money. Uh, the fact of the matter is you don't need to spend $10,000 on a life insurance policy to get 3.5%. You can very easily put that money into a term life policy and then put the rest into an index fund. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think the, the big takeaway is don't get too fancy with it. That's my, that's been, I'm not an insurance expert by any means, but I think keeping things fairly simple is always my, my go-to. So circling back to our talk earlier about how hard it's getting in the, in the markets, you wrote a piece in the last couple of weeks about GMO and the, the fact that they've, and we've talked about them before, that's Jeremy Grantham's shop. They're pretty bearish, I'd say, overall for the next seven years on, on what's going to happen in the market. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who've been bearish for a number of years now, but haven't really backed it up with, with their investment portfolio. There was, a, there was an article in the Financial Times a few months ago, and they called these people plastic bears, people who are bearish on the market, but then don't really back it up. And they just say, you know, don't worry, when things hit the fan, we'll, we'll get you out. That's also known as a bear 2.0 ah, for nice. the new whales out there. <laughs> yeah. So there was actually, I think this was shared to us from Jeff Patak from Morningstar on Twitter. He shared with us GMO's asset allocation strategy that I think it's called their benchmark free fund. And so tell me a little bit about how this fund is set up and how it is showing their sort of skin in the game from some of their views. Okay. So this is a huge fund. There's well over $10 billion in here. And I, I got to say, I give them a ton of credit for putting their money where their mouth is. They break this up into equities, alternatives, fixed income, and cash. And It's basically a go-anywhere fund, right? Yeah. And they are going anywhere. In their equity regional weightings, they are just slightly underweight the U.S. They're at 7%. And emerging markets, they are sixty three percent. So yeah, so I've never, I've never seen something like this. Their takeaway has been emerging markets are pretty much the only relatively inexpensive place in this in the global stock market, and they've made a huge. So by comparison, they have over sixty percent in, in emerging markets, which from the global market cap is m- roughly nine to ten percent. I think that's what yeah. the share of EM. So they have a huge, huge, enormous overweight which is a big career risk for in a lot of ways. And they've really gone for it here. Right. So they think that there are many areas of the market overvalued. So again, the US is 50% of the global equity market. And they have it at they have the exposure at 7%. They have almost 20% of the fund in cash. So um, if they end up being right, they are going to look really, really, really good. I think it's also interesting the fact that this type of go anywhere fund from an investor standpoint, you have to really give a lot of have a lot of faith in the fund manager and portfolio management team and process and really try to understand like what you're benchmarking it against and how to how to assess the performance of something like this. That's not an easy thing for investors to do. If you're investing in GMO, you pretty much should know what you're getting. And if you're paying a fund manager 
to do something different, then this is exactly what you want to be paying for, in my opinion. Yeah, in theory, that makes sense. But I think GMO's history has shown when they begin lagging a few years you know, into a raging bull market, money always pours out. So it, it never seems to work that way with a lot of their investors. They're, they have a lot of Johnny-come-latelys, just like everyone else, I suppose. Yeah. But that happens when you have you know close to $100 billion in assets that are management. There's always going to be people who, for career risk reasons, are going to be chasing performance. So Corey Hofstein wrote a really good primer on momentum, which has been called by many the premier anomaly. Two centuries of momentum. And one of the interesting takeaways for me, at least, was he spoke about like why was it ignored for so long, especially by the academicians. Did I, say, did I pronounce that right? Is that a word? Yeah. Judges rule? Academics. Uh, academic. <laughs> the, te- the teachers. Academic magicians. Okay, okay. So Corey wrote, speculative was a pejorative term. Even the title of the intelligent investor implied that any investors not performing security analysis were not intelligent. And I think there's a lot to that. That it might be dismissed because it's just sounds so easy. Let's like, wait, I don't have to, I don't have to know anything about the business, the competitors, the margins. I could just look at the fifty-two week high list, and and that's that's all there is to it. One of the reasons I think momentum kind of gets a painted with a bad brush is because it's really a quantitative investment strategy. And no offense to our quant friends, but a lot of quants of the past haven't been very good at explaining it very well. And I know there's a lot of quants now who are better at this. So Alpha Architect, we mentioned people like Corey and Meb Faber and Cliff Asnes are much better at explaining this stuff now. But I think in the past, this was this just not an intuitive concept. So I think the idea of momentum really is rising prices attract buyers, falling prices attract sellers. But it doesn't last forever, obviously. So people confuse momentum with performance chasing, which in some ways it is, but in a lot of ways it isn't. Well, it's smart performance chasing. Yes. One of the interesting data points, and there's a ton in this paper, so I highly recommend it. He looked at a paper from Griffin, G, and Martin, and they demonstrate momentum's robustness, finding it to be large and statistically reliable in periods of both negative and positive economic growth. I thought that was kind of interesting, that most factors are going to be sensitive to the overall economy. And I think the idea here is the fact that this is very behavioral driven. I think that's that's one of the reasons I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around it, because... Basically, momentum thrives or works or happens because people make mistakes. And so people chase performance and people over and underreact. And that's kind of why I think momentum is kind of impervious to the economic cycle, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around. And I think it makes sense if you just think about it like the opposite of value, right? And Wes has done a study on like what's good momentum versus bad price momentum. And I think that he compared, he, I think he called this like the boiling frog in water. Yes. That slow and steady is a really, really effective way to capture this premium. But if you look at a stock that like gapped up 18% and would have pro- positive you know, price momentum over the last 12 months, that's not necessarily indicative of future returns. And his, if you want to do a deep dive on this, his book, Quantitative Momentum, is really, if you really, really want to understand this in a deep way, I think that's a, that's a great primer for a lot of people. So friend of the show, Eric Belchunas of Bloomberg, he's a great follow on Twitter. I think we've mentioned him before. He always has really great ETF and mutual fund stats. He is on a ETF show on Bloomberg, which you just appeared on recently. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. And so he always has some great stats to, to show. And he actually showed the Fidelity Contra Fund, which is one of the larger funds that Fidelity Investments has, has actually been one of the few active mutual funds that has performed well. And basically, it's crushed the S&P 500 and its peers in recent years, but it's seeing huge outflows. 
And so he said that it had $15 billion in outflows over the last 12 months, even though it's outperforming the S&P 500, which kind of shows how powerful the shift to low-cost investment funds is, that even active funds that are outperforming are seeing outflows. So Jeffrey Patak slid in with a pretty interesting actually that a third of this was just shifting between a different share class. But still, we'll share the chart. This thing has destroyed since the beginning of 2017 and still, so let's call it $10 billion of legitimate outflows, which is kind of nuts. And it's kind of crazy that low costs in a lot of ways have sort of trumped a performance chase, which is, which is kind of hard to do, I think, psychologically for investors. Usually you think performance chasing is everything, especially short-term performance, and it hasn't been the case here. So one of the running themes we've had on this show is the fact that real estate prices in Silicon Valley are just off the charts. And I was going to say bonkers, but someone tweeted me the other day and said that I use the show bonkers too much on this show. So I'm looking for a different adjective. So if anyone has any ideas... This is avocados. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's good. This is cantaloupe. So there was a great... You just, tweet- you just, ru- you just ruined my joke. Did I? Okay. Wah, wah. <laughs> Sorry. So there was a tweet from the other day by a gal named Sally Kuchar. And I think she lives out in California. And she had a real, it was flying all around Twitter. And she basically went through a lot of the different cities in the Silicon Valley area to show how crazy things have gotten. So she said, some of the stats I picked out, based on 43 homes sold in the last 30 days, the median sale price for a home in Palo Alto is $3.1 million. And the average down payment was 30% or close to a million dollars. Wait, do you think do you think money's coming out of the NASDAQ stocks because real estate is up so much and therefore the shares prices are going down? Just a theory. Maybe there's cash on the sideline for real estate now. Cash is returning to the sideline. Ah, yeah. Cash is returning to the home. Okay. The, the other one, even in a place like Oakland that is much more affordable, supposedly, they said the median sales price in Oakland was 735000 with an average down payment of 34% or like two hundred fifty grand. And then she says that the median household income in Oakland is like $57,000. So it's this is why it's so expensive to get a U-Haul out of there. So I, I want to ask you a question. So these these prices and in, in stats are insane. How does this compare to buying a house in like Manhattan or somewhere in the New York area? Is it anywhere close to that there? Or is, is this just on another level? No, I, I don't think that. I think that this is apples and desk chairs, like nothing, okay. nothing alike. Okay. It's just, I mean, seeing these stats, it's kind of like one of those things that you keep thinking it has to end, it has to end, and it just hasn't happened yet. And I just can't imagine how, quote unquote, normal people will continue to be able to live in these areas. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's avocados, man. I don't know. Okay. We're, are we going to make that one happen, like Noob Whale? No, let's not. Okay. So this week, you were giving me some quick technical analysis. So we're going to do a new segment called Michael Explains Technical Analysis to Ben. So why don't you okay, tell no, no, we're not. Us. This is a one time. This is a one time thing. Okay. Well, this is a running sh- thing between the, the two of us, and you can kind of explain technical analysis to me um, because I'm a noob will as far as technical analysis goes. Okay, and so am I. And I think that it gets a, it gets a bad rap in some circles because people tend to just overdo it and really abuse abuse it. And I think that fundamental analysis would get the same sort of snide remarks if it was more public because some of the stuff is just sort of silly there too. But anyway, so I called you yesterday and I was like, hey, do you see, are you looking at Tesla? And you said- Of course I wasn't, no. No, of course you weren't. (laughs) So what I said was that, so I'm a believer in horizontal support. So in other words, if you just, if you knew nothing and you looked at just the price of Tesla, looking at- isn't, hey, hold on, I got a dad joke. Isn't horizontal support the name of a Stormy Daniels flick? 
Hey, all right. Anyway, <laughs> not bad, not bad. <laughs> all right. Um, so if you knew nothing and you were just looking at a candlestick daily, a daily candlestick chart of Tesla, you would see that several times, maybe half Wait, a dozen explain, to a dozen. Explain to me again, what is a candlestick chart? Okay. So a candlestick chart is a really good way of just showing the behavior of buyers and sellers because what it does is it shows you the opening price, the close price, and the high and the low. Okay. All right. So what what you would see looking at the Tesla chart is between 290 and 300, like I said, a dozen times going back to April 2017, buyers stepped in. So so demand met supply several dozen times. That's a, that's an exaggeration. But anyway, the point is once that level is breached and buyers don't show up, especially like the more times the level is tested, the more susceptible or vulnerable it becomes to a break, which is what we're seeing today. So I might see Jim Carrey a short Facebook and raise him a short Tesla. <laughs> Whoa, you heard it here, folks. All right. That was Michael Explains Technical Analysis to Ben. Thank you very much. <laughs> this, will, this, this will not be a recurring uh, theme. Don't worry. All right. Any good recommendations for this week? Why don't you start? Okay. I got a bunch. So my wife and I watched Lady Bird, which I think is probably one of the better movies I've seen in a while. Very good. Just a, it, It's a perfect depiction of, of a teenage daughter and her mother, like the relationship they have. It's funny. It's kind of uh, got some drama in it, and I highly recommend. That's one of the better ones I've seen in a while. Wild Wild Country on Netflix. I'm only one episode in, but it is wild to use a description that they use. It's a it's a documentary about a cult that came into this small Oregon town in the 1980s, and the whole time my wife and I are saying to each other like, "Wait, what? This is this actually happened? And I've never heard of this before. It is just crazy. I I, I don't even know how to explain it. Were they chartered market technicians? <laughs> yes, yes. It's very cultish. They were they were using head and shoulders patterns. My other recommendation that I gave before season two, I said, check out season one of Atlanta. I'm about three to four season, three to four episodes into season two, and it's definitely not hit the sophomore slump. It's great. Hold on. I, I just got show. to say, that was, a, that, that was a joke. I know many CMTs and I love them. Good people. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you don't want to get hit up on Twitter from that. So I, I really <laughs> no, like please. Atlanta. Paperboy is probably my favorite new TV character. And finally, uh, I just enjoyed the Tim Ferriss, Daniel Pink uh, podcast. He's a guy, the only book of his I've read is called Drive, which is about motivation. And he had a very cool podcast with Tim Ferriss talking about his process of doing speeches. He used to be a speechwriter for Al Gore and of writing books. So I highly recommend that. All right. The only thing I got this week, which has kept me very busy, is Legacy of Ashes. So I just want to read one excerpt from this. So this is about the history of the CIA. And I've never written in the margins in any single book as, a, as I have for this one. All right, here we go. Uh, so this describes two ships, the Maddox and the Turner Joy in the Southeastern Sea. Quote, the radar and sonar operators aboard the Maddox and the Turner Joy reported seeing ghostly blotches in the night. Their captains opened fire. The NSA report declassified in 2005 described how the two destroyers gyrated wildly in the dark waters of the Gulf of Tonkin, the Turner Joy firing over 300 rounds madly, both ships taking furious evasive maneuvers. It was this high-speed gyrating by the American warships through the waters that had created all the additional sonar reports of more torpedoes. They had been firing at their own shadows. The president immediately ordered an airstrike against North Vietnamese naval bases to begin that night. Wow. End quote. That's like something that you would see in like the Naked Gun or something. <laughs> yeah, firing out their own shadows. That's hilarious. Yeah, Very so good. I highly recommend that. And then one more thing that I meant to speak about last week, but I forgot. 
There was a really good podcast with Bill Simmons and Chuck Klosterman. Did we talk about this last week? I don't think so, but I'm a fan anytime Klosterman goes with, on with Simmons. I always listen to that. Okay. Okay. So two things that he said that I thought were really, really interesting. One was that Netflix has replaced novels, which is one of the reasons why people are so hungry for nonfiction. That was great. I, I, think it, in a, I think in a lot of ways it has for me. I used to read way more fiction books than I have too. So I think TV has taken over a lot of that reading for me in a lot of areas of life. By the way, as we speak, Tesla is down 8%. This is textbook follow through to the downside. Obviously, Elon Musk or someone is listening to this podcast. All right, hi, Mark, uh, and then hi, Mr. Zuckerberg. The other thing about uh, the classroom thing that I thought was really interesting, he said he recommended, and this will never happen, but one of the things that Twitter could do to make it a little bit less gross is if you charged people a dollar per follow, like he said he has a lot of people that just hate follow him and just call him an asshole, whatever, because it costs him nothing. But I think that's like a really good way to clean, clean it up. Like, you know, nobody's going to pay somebody. Nobody's going to pay to hate follow. Yes. Oh, and a lot of it is... Uh, the fact that that people are trying to figure out ways of decluttering their life and not spending so much time on social media, that'd be a great way to do that and simplify and really narrow down you know, your filter of that sort of stuff. All right. So that's all we got. Uh, thank you for listening. We will see you next week when the show leaks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>